Hi, everyone, and welcome to season two. I can't believe I'm saying that. Season two of Gathering Ground, where with each new episode, a special guest and I explore what it looks like to thrive and survive in the nonprofit landscape. I'm Mary Morton, president of Morton Group, LLC. Morton Group is a national consulting firm that is based in Chicago and works with clients from coast to coast and everywhere in between. Our work includes organizational development, research, executive placements, diversity, racial equity, and inclusion. I hope you're having a great summer, and I'm excited to be back with another guest here on Gathering Ground. To kick off our second season, we are so excited to welcome Vu Lei. Vu Lei is the creator of Nonprofit AF and executive director of Rainer Valley Corps, a Seattle nonprofit that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Vu's passion is to make the world better. And that, combined with the low score on the LSAT, those are his words, drove him into the field of nonprofit, where he learned that we should take the work seriously, but not ourselves. Vu believes that there is tons of humor in the nonprofit world, and someone needs to document it. He is going to do that with the hope that one day, a TV producer will see how cool and interesting our field is and make a show about nonprofit work, featuring strategic planning and meetings and filing 990 tax forms. Who wouldn't want to see that? So Vu was most recently seen here in Chicago delivering a keynote at Axelson Center for Nonprofit Management, which is part of North Park University, and he will be back by popular demand for Association of Fundraising Professionals upcoming development day on September 20th. More on that at afpchicago.org. Nonprofit AF was formerly Nonprofit with Balls, and I want to hear about the title change, the name change, and all those pieces as well. It has hundreds of blog posts reminding us to find the humor in the nonprofit world that we're surrounded by. Please welcome Vu Lei to Gathering Ground. Hi, Vu. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, what we always like to start with here on Gathering Ground is... Tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get to your current nonprofit in Seattle? Yeah, absolutely. I was born as a small child. <laughs> really? You didn't come out? As a... <laughs> uh -huh. And my, uh, my father, my, my family and I went through this immigration process. My dad fought against the communists. So we escaped Vietnam and then came over to the United States when I was eight. And uh, my parents wanted to me, me to become a doctor or maybe a lawyer or preferably like a combination of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I, I just realized that wasn't really a path for me. So in college, I selected social work, which made them very proud. And I, I did that because we just we don't have enough people going into this field mm -hmm. doing development work or community mobilizing. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to. So I got my master's in social work and I couldn't find a job. And then I, I landed a, a fellowship program that sent me to a great organization called the Vietnamese Friendship Association. And I spent a lot of my time just developing all of uh, the organization. And that was the beginning of my career. And so you started in that manner. How did you get to Rainer Valley Corps? Yeah, the Vietnamese Friendship Association, VFA, which, by the way, is not a dating site. <laughs> <laughs> it was doing a whole bunch of really cool programs for low-income kids who just arrived in the United States and their families. 
And after about nine years of leading that organization, I realized that the nonprofit sector is, is great, but there's so many different challenges. One of the biggest challenges is that organizations led by communities of color have just totally been screwed by fundraising, by funding, and then we don't have enough people of color going right. into minor work. So I helped to found Rainier Valley Corps to really think about how do we help these organizations and help bring more leaders in? How do we do capacity building differently? How do we incorporate equity and diversity? Right. We have a staff. And how large about, is your staff and board right now? I think we're now. going to be about 17 full-time staff. And then we have a, a board of right now about eight mm-hmm. people. Everyone is a person of color. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Okay, great. And so we're, we'll talk a little bit about your future plans uh, with the organization, but let's talk about the blog and, and how it started uh, and why. And, and uh, it started with Nonprofit with Balls. And what was the idea behind that name and then the eventual change to Nonprofit a- AF? I almost said exactly what that, what that means, but um, yes, yes, yes. So yes, let's talk about the blog balls, and how it started. It <laughs> uh, started when a funder, one of our funders, uh, Social Venture Partners, in Seattle, asked me to write from a grantee's perspective from their uh, on, on their website, and I thought, oh man, it's one of our funders. I can't really say no, so I said yes. And that, but I told him, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it differently because we have so much academic writing, and I, I wanted, I wanted to show a different side, you know. And I've always been sort of the class clown. Uh, the sort of sense of humor was a way for me to survive being an immigrant kid. And so I kind of, I tried to incorporate a lot of that into, into my writing. And people really responded to it. I think it's because so much of the work that we do is so serious that a little bit of levity really can be really great. Uh, so then the blog uh, started taking off. It spun out into Nonprofit with Balls. That was a play on, I guess, this one organization that came to my organization and said, Boo, can you help us, you know? We don't know how to reach communities of color. Can you get like 20 people of color from your programs to come and do a focus group with us? And I was like, here's this white-led organization who is who has a bunch of money going to ask a nonprofit led by a community of color to do something for free. And this happens over and over again. If you want our, our support, then you need to build this into your budget. Pay for it. And he said, and I'll always it. remember this, right. he says, so what you're telling me is that you're not going to play ball unless I throw money at you. <laughs> and I was like, look, dude, okay, I have plenty of balls. We have plenty of balls in our faces every single day. We don't need to juggle your balls for you. I wish I could have seen his face. <laughs> yeah, I sat down. I was like, huh, no problem with balls. <laughs> we got plenty of them. And so that was where it came from. Yeah. That's where the title came from. Well, after a few years, people was giving me lots of feedback like, Boo, I love what you're writing, but I can't share with my mother. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, you're right. Okay. So it, it changed it changed to nonprofit AF, which stands for nonprofit and fearless. Oh, is that what it stands for? Okay. <laughs> okay. Because that's not what I thought it stood for. But I I, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, that's that's what we're gonna we're gonna stick with that. Okay, um, so you talk a lot, of course, in your blog about the challenges, the triumphs of of working in a nonprofit, and uh, you certainly do it with a lot of humor. I, it was particularly timely. Now, of course, we are a consulting group, but 
because I have started nonprofits and work with them. We work with nonprofits and for-profits and foundations, but I often uh, talk about <laughs> our consulting group as though it's a nonprofit. It is not. Um, but I certainly understand from my work in nonprofits and in foundations, uh, many of the, the stories that you share and some of the challenges as well. And it was particularly timely, the vacation tips for nonprofit professionals who suck at vacationing, uh, because this has always been one of my one of my uh, struggles, I would say, it, no matter whether I was in working in for-profit or nonprofit. I'm wondering if you, in fact, and I thought you talked about in that particular blog that you're not sort of ideal at that yourself. Or let's talk about how you are, how you're doing at vacationing, because here's the thing. People ask, you know, you're an ED of this incredible organization. You have the blog. You have a family. How do you find that balance? And I'm always saying to people, is, is that even possible to have a balance? So how are you doing around the work-life balance? And, and, and what do you say when people ask you about that? Well, we have to talk about some of the things we have to change. This is, this is some of the stuff that I talk about on the blog all the time, which is like we need to stop trying to do things the same way all the time. Right. In, in, in for-profit, we, uh, you may have a CEO, a CFO, a COO. You know, in the nonprofit sector, we often just combine everything into one, and then we call that the ED. So this person has to do all the external stuff, all the internal stuff, while still be able to, you know, to clean the toilet. But no wonder we are burning out, right? So if we are talking about balance, yes, it is possible. So my organization, for example, we have a managing director who serves as an internal executive director. And this allows me to focus on what I'm good at, which is the external facing with fundraising and public speaking and things. So that is the model that you've worked with. It's similar to having a deputy director, would you say, in an organization? Is it a different title? Or do you think it's, from what you understand, a deputy director might do um, versus what your managing director does? Is that different? Uh, it's similar and, and it's different. Yes, uh, I think... A deputy director is, is great. Our model is a little bit different because the manager, it's more like a co-director. Like, so it's sort of like a, a step up above sort of this deputy director and, and ED, but a little one step before the co-director because I still supervise the managing director. Um, oh, but, okay. Uh, but she has all basically way more influence. And then the way that we go about doing things with like a, Decision making is that we have this uh, advice process decision making model where whoever is closest to the problem gets to make the decision as long as they check in and get feedback from people most affected by injustice and people who are most affected by the problem and the people who would have the, the information that would be helpful when they're making a decision. So if my development director decides that we're going to throw a pajama party for major donors or whatever, <laughs> as long as he follows the process and checked in with the donors and other staff who have to help out. I cannot veto his decision. I can't be like, sorry, that's, uh, you know, I can't do that. Like, because we hire brilliant people. Why do we hire brilliant people and then not allow them to do their job? So, you know, this is a model that we've been exploring with and it's, um, it's been really great. It's been really interesting. Well, let's, look, let's explore that for a moment. Um, so, yes, you hire someone brilliant. What if you are hiring someone who is brilliant, um, yet young or early, if you will, in their career in this field, do you still feel that same level of comfort of saying, yes, we're giving you the title? For instance, I've 
I have certainly promoted people into positions where I know they're going to grow into that new title that I don't, I know when this promotion is taking place, they are not sort of uh, at the, at the top of that, you know, position or even, even understanding some of the intricacies of it. But I, I want to promote them. I want to support them. We make sure they get um, professional development and that there is understandably a learning curve and a way that we gradually give them more and more work. So let's say we have a project manager and that project manager comes into the position uh, from being a project coordinator. They will not take on all the roles and responsibilities of the project manager from the very beginning, but they will gradually take it on as they are understanding the depth and breadth of the work. How would that work in an organization where you hire a development director and, and your model of we hire brilliant people? And yes, they can be brilliant and and at the earlier part of their career. So there's some experiences they have not had. How do yeah. you feel comfortable with that decision-making process you've outlined? Yeah, it's definitely uh, something to negotiate, right? And to, but I, I, I think what we've, and we've, we've had some challenges where some of the younger staff are like, I don't feel comfortable being given this level of responsibility and decision-making. And I think that's something to, and so the role of the supervisor had to shift also, like figuring out when uh, and also how to help this this person make the decisions um, is, is, is something that we need to really consider. So, yeah, it's, it's a complicated, but what we've discovered, and, and it can be scary also, you know, and then also on occasion you get this sort of like accusation that, you know, I'm just doing your job for you. You're like, you're forcing me to make decisions that you should be. And uh, so, yeah, there's all these things that we have to think about. But I think um, we need to kind of start getting, if we really trust we want to promote people, then we should guide them. But eventually, at some point, they need to, be able to make all these decisions and we need to support them in making those decisions. And and how do you work with younger staff who are coming into their own and are saying these these kinds of things that I don't feel comfortable? Because I certainly have heard that as well, whether I was a nonprofit or for profit. Um, certainly younger folks in their career have felt that they just can't do it. How have you helped people feel more comfortable to make the decisions and to help them grow in the position? Yeah, the role of the supervisor has to really change to be, to be more support and mentorship, right? So really walking them through, okay, what, what do we need to do? Do we need to design a survey to send out to everyone? And let's help, uh, let's help them process through. And also this, this feeling, like, you know, why are you, you know, and telling why they might be reluctant and what does it mean? And also really assuring everyone that it's okay to fail. Right, we do, we talk about failure a lot, and yet we don't really carry it out logically, right? If we embracing failure, then we should let people make the decision, take responsibility for it, and then if they fail, we help them learn, and so that they don't make the same mistakes again, you know. So these are all things that I think the supervisor needs to start shifting a lot towards, because right now, half of time has been like about micromanagement and. I think it's just way more fun to have this sort of like coaching. No, I, I absolutely agree. I often will say to new uh, team members that unless if you are sitting at your desk with your hands folded, then you're not going to make any mistakes. Uh, mm -hmm. However, my expectation is that you're not going to be sitting at your desk with your hands folded. And so therefore there will be some mistakes and we have to learn from them and then move on. Um, so don't be concerned about trying something um, getting out of your comfort zone. And I agree, it really has to be the environment 
that we've set up um, for our team members. Also, this idea of when someone's actually transitioning out of an organization that um, in most cases, giving two weeks notice is simply not enough. But as you probably know, people have been treated horribly when they've given notice. And so they're not going to do any more in some cases than what they absolutely have to do. And uh, when, when trying to get people to understand that a longer runway is helpful and that you're not going to be penalized for leaving. In fact, I'm trying to help you develop for your next step. I think that's what a good supervisor does. I don't expect you to retire um, from our group. I want to know what you're interested in. How do we support you in your development here and what you want to do uh, when you, when you, you know, take your next steps and how, how has that played out in your organization in terms of transitions and, and onboarding, those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I really appreciate that sort of mentality that people are not going to stick around forever. And we want, we also want to have this sort of expansive, generous view of talent development, right? I really encourage the sector to think about how do we actually develop talent for the entire sector because people are not going to stay here. And we want them to be amazing for the next organization because that other organization is probably doing just as important work as our own organization, right? Right. But we've been pushed into this sort of like hunger games of talent, trying to compete for the best talent or whatever. I think we all win if we just treat all of our candidates as if they are amazing leaders. And we want to help them fulfill their potential so they can change the world, whether they are at our organization or whether they're at another organization or if they're running for office or whatever it is. And that should be the challenge for us. Right. And so we try to have the, those sorts of philosophies at Rainier Valley Corps, we don't always do the best job at it. We've had um, people transition out. Um, so we struggle like everyone else. But I'm, I'm hoping that people will understand that, you know, we have this, we're trying to do things a little bit differently. We're trying to really think about the entire community, not just what's good for RBT. Great. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, some uh, pressing issues uh, in nonprofits and foundations, and one that has been getting a fair amount of of uh, play and publicity uh, in the last year and certainly didn't begin or end with uh, this book, but certainly it has elevated the conversation. And I'm talking about Decolonizing Wealth, Edgar Villanueva's book, where he talks very clearly about um, this idea of the 5% payout, which of course you just um, had a blog about as well. And and I'm wondering, since you do make a fair amount of um, critique, shall we say, <laughs> on the foundation world and community, what has been, one, what's been the response to those critiques? And in particular, what was the response, if you've, you know, if you've heard anything at this point, because this is a fairly recent um, blog about the 5% payout. I mean, again, Edgar's been talking about it for about a year. It's not the first time it's come up, but I think it's been lifted up in a different manner in the last couple of years and wondering uh, what the reaction has been to some of the things you've written about. Yeah, it's definitely not something that's new. Lots of leaders have been talking about it. I really appreciate Edgar's take on it because it's really putting this sort of moral imperative on this, right? And that's kind of what I, I wrote about, which is like, is it really ethical to be storing away 95% of the funding, just letting it sit there? For a rainy day. <laughs> On a rainy day. Because as my colleague Al Cantor said, it's like, it's like a house is on fire and you're like, I'm just going to spend 5% of the water to put out the fire so I can save other 95% for future fires. Well, if you don't put out these, the current existing fire is keep, it's going to keep spreading, right? And then there's a huge difference between conservative funders 
and progressive funders, as highlighted in the Sally Covington report, which came out like 20, over 20 years ago. Nothing has changed. Progressive funders just don't, they are ironically very conservative. And conservative funders are ironically very liberal in the way that they spend money. And so they're able to get stuff done. They spend five times more funding on youth organizations to make sure that youth have conservative values. So we're spending one-fifth of that. And we just assume that, that progressive youth would just automatically have progressive and retain the progressive values and act on them. And, and conservatives know that if they spend more money now, then the youth will, will become judges and lawyers and, and public servants, and they're going to carry forward conservative ideas. And progressive funders, we're like, no, nah, we're just going to spend our 5%. And then we wonder why we're just constantly struggling uh, to play within the system here. And I, I think I think it's just not working. And we move on. We should learn from conservative funders how they go about doing it. So I've been saying all these things. And the reaction has been very interesting, um, which is there's a lot of amazing program officers who are like, yeah, boo, burn it down or whatever. <laughs> But then there's a whole lot of, of program officers who just like, I agree with you. And at the same time, you know, I don't have any power or, or autonomy to make any decisions. And then there are a few who are just very opposed to it. And then there are a few nonprofits who are opposed to it. Really? I've had, yeah, there's a few nonprofits who are like, well, you know, if they, if they give more money, then there won't be enough in the future. I'm like, but don't you want to be put out of business? Don't you want to like be a wedding photographer or whatever you want to do? When all of this is done, then a we cartoonist. Actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, like in an ideal world, many of us would not have a job. We would be able to pursue arts and music and other things, you know. But we don't think about that, and and we just put into the survival mode. And I feel like sometimes we are our worst, our own worst enemies. Absolutely, our survival mode and the scarcity mode. I mean, because the reality is there is more than enough money out there, right, for what we yeah. want to do. If we could get to it. And so you've had funders. What about your own funders for your own organization? Has that been a concern um, with regard to some of the things you're saying in the blog and how it could impact your own organization? My funders are great. I really appreciate them. I mean, we get into arguments all the time. They know who I am. So once in a while, we'll get into fistfights. You know, <laughs> and I really appreciate these conversations. And I feel very privileged that I'm able to have funders who are willing to be challenged and be pushed back and, and everything. So, yeah. But, you know, on occasion, we still have some funders who are just like, oh, in your last proposal, can you, like, remove the word redlining and racism from your... Really? Yeah. And I have to think, okay, do I want, do I want to do that? Well, we're going to take a short break. You are listening to Gathering Ground. And we're so excited today to have Vu Lay with us, who is the executive director of Rainer Valley Corps and the author of the insanely funny and always helpful nonprofit uh, blog, Nonprofit AF. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. That's Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Gathering Ground. 
On our season opener, this is season two, we are pleased to be joined by Vu Le. Vu is the executive director of Rainer Valley Corps and the author, the creator of the nonprofit blog, Nonprofit AF. If you have not read it and subscribed to it, you really are missing out. And so, Vu, let's continue our conversation. Um, let's talk a little bit about equity and inclusion and how you see that being lifted up in your own organization and in, in, in nonprofits o- overall. What, what have you been seeing around the country? Yeah, I, I feel like equity, diversity, and inclusion has, uh, has, has had a lot more attention lately. In the past, when I attended a conference, it would just be like a track, you know? Here's the fundraising track, and the evaluation track and the equity track. <laughs> and it'll have like eight people going to the equity track. <laughs> and now it's more like the plenary where it's like, no, we need to talk about this. That needs to be the theme of the entire time. And I feel like this is a really good sign that people are paying more attention and really think about the nuances and intersectionalities that we have to deal with. Because it is a very complicated topic. Um, so, I'm really glad to, to see that. Um, it's still a challenge, you know, and there's just so much to learn. Like my, um, you know, I, I'm starting to learn more about disability, for example, for example, and gender and transgender identity and challenges, uh, faced by, by transgender individuals. And that's something that I, I didn't really have much training in before. So this is something that we have to all acknowledge that we make mistakes too. Even my own organization, which is all people of color, we were still perpetuating some of the inequities we've been preaching about by not paying our fellows enough of a living wage, for example. We're paying them $13 an hour to live in Seattle because we were based on other national uh, core type programs that are just not um, good at paying people enough. And so we raised their, their, their pay, but that, and then we wrote about it just so we can be transparent with others. But, you know, so all of us are, are, are trying to figure this out. Uh, I do feel like funders really need to get in on this. They talk a lot about it. Still, there's still a lot of inequities we need to talk about. You know, a lot, most 90% of funds still go to white-led organizations. And, and it's been like this for forever. And yet, you know, we, we keep talking about equity, but like, I feel like equity is reflected in money. It's not reflected in us all holding hands, chanting equity. Exactly. Right. Because, you know, when we do our fundraising workshops and I'm talking to boards of directors and, you know, you have folks who just, I just can't fundraise. I don't know how to. I don't know anyone who has money. I don't like doing it. And I volunteer my time. And it's great if you volunteer your time. However, as I mentioned, every two weeks or once a month, however often your staff are paid, um, they need actually cold hard cash. They cannot take your volunteer hours to the grocery store. They can't take them. <laughs> you know, they, they need money. And so we actually need cash from you, uh, the folks who are at the highest level of leadership in an organization. We, you know, we need 100% giving because it does send a signal. And um, that continues to be one of those equity questions when people say, well, we'd like to have our, we'd like to have some of our customers or clients on the board, but we know they won't be able to raise money. And that, too, is an equity issue because that's not true. Everyone, as you know, can raise money. And we may not do it all in the same way, but we can all raise money. And it seems as though that message continues to be difficult for uh, organizations and boards to hear and to internalize. And that we have to give our boards skill-building opportunities. People don't just come understanding how to make the ask, right? We, 
You know, we just don't, oh, I, know, I think I'm going to go and make an ask. Although the reality is we do know how to do it. Um, it just hasn't been formalized. Um, I often use the example in our workshops of some of the best fundraisers being a small child. A small child will see a bike. Uh, they will decide they want the bike and they will talk to as many people as they need to get the bike, right? They may go to their parents. They may go to grandparents. Uh, the argument doesn't work well there. They turn to the next audience and they continue until they get the bike because they, they don't have any of the baggage that we have around money. And so um, I just find that that is, that is another message with regard to equity uh, and, and really getting people to understand this idea that I think the Pacific Northwest has done uh, has really led the way on uh, salary uh, being disclosed sooner rather than later, if not in the position description itself. Something we do, most of our positions are executive level, and so people obviously can find some idea of what the salary is online through the 990. However, we ask, we've stopped many, many years ago asking for what your salary history is, and we ask for your salary requirements. And if we see that in fact, what they're saying they need and where the salary is, if there's a, you know, a lot of distance there, we want to have that conversation because we don't know why someone may be interested in the position and why just automatically take them out of a search process. Um, we've had a dean of a college come in and say, I want to change careers. I want to go into nonprofit and I understand that I'm going to take a pay cut. And so we need to have that conversation sooner rather than later. And that's part of our transparency and our commitment to equity, knowing that people of color, and women are generally underpaid. And we don't want to go in with this idea that we're going to just pick up wherever you were leaving off in, in, in salary. And so that's been part of our, our work as we do our executive placements is to really try to be more transparent and to try to have those conversations earlier and to try to get the client to understand why, because that's not what people are used to. They're used to, you know, having someone go through an entire process and then negotiate the salary. And then you're very disappointed sometimes. Yeah, this is a very simple way to advance equities. Um, regarding your, I would, regarding just like the, the fundraiser on the board, I, I would, and I, I wrote about this, which is I, I don't believe nonprofit staff should be asked to donate to the organizations that they work for. I just don't think there are power dynamics. You can't really say no. People of color are usually at the lower rungs of the ladder, so they're going to be impacted more. It's all, all this guilt and everything. I wrote about this and got a whole yes. bunch of pushback, uh, from this. And regarding like the board members, yes, we, you know, we should encourage them and help them build their skills and fundraising. At the same time, again, we always have this like 100% board giving thing. And I have learned that why do we, why do we have this? I remember having a board that I was on where I was just like, please just give some money so I can count you as 100%, you know, and just give $5. In fact, I'll give you $10. Give $5. You get a net. <laughs> and they're like, no, I'm not going to do this. They were offended to be asked to donate money to your organization because they're like, I am giving so much money. You are helping. You. This is your job. This is this is why this organization was founded. I'm giving my time. I'm working as a janitor, and you're expecting me to give you money. And and yet at the same time, so it's like a, it's like this visceral reaction to them. At the same time, they're spending all their money to bring food into the office for staff. And whenever we went out for for dinner or coffee, they always insist on paying because it's the culturally appropriate thing to do for the elders to pay, um, you know, for younger up and coming career professionals. So the way that we define like what what is uh, what is a, a valuable contribution is it cash or time or in kind or whatever. 
those are things we have to really think about too as we think about equity. I would agree. And what's your message going to be, or I don't, some sense of what your message would be uh, coming up uh, for the conference here, which is fo- focused on fundraising here in Chicago. What kinds of messages do you generally give an audience? What can they expect from you? Besides maybe some pictures of animals and uh, <laughs> things of that nature. <laughs> yeah, that's become kind of a, a trademark now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. The conversation we were talking about, how, how do we advance the fundraising? How do we do it length of equity and diversity and inclusion? Because let's face it, the way that we've been doing fundraising has been excluding a lot of people. It has been designed for, for white fundraisers to work with white donors, basically. And in many ways, the way we've been doing it is to, to avoid having difficult conversations with our donors about wealth disparities, about systemic racism, about colonization, about slavery, about why their family got this money in the first place. And because we don't want our donors to feel bad. And then it generates this sort of hunger game where we're just competing to get as much money for our own organization as possible. And I really think that we need to move out of these mindsets. We have to start thinking about how do we have difficult conversations with our donors. And that means sometimes we might lose a few. It means how do we fundraise in such a way where it benefits the entire community, where maybe we don't apply to a grant. Maybe we introduce a donor to another nonprofit that might have a better mission. Maybe we don't take a donation. Um, you know, Maybe it's okay for our mission to be on the back burner. Um, and we have to really start thinking like, like this. And I know it's kind of, when I bring this up to people, they're like, what the heck? You want me to introduce uh, my donor, my, my major donors to another mission? What sort of blasphemy is that? And I, <laughs> that's kind of what we, one of the things we do at Rainier Valley Corps is we have this thing called a, a, a Community Connect lunches, where every month we, we invite our existing donors and we invite one of our partner organizations to come in. And 95% of the time is spent talking about that partner organization's work. And I remember one Friday night when a partner organization, the ED, who had been featured at that one lunch earlier in the day, she called me up and she said, Vu, one of the donors you introduced me to, one of your donors, just, just gave $500 to my organization. Right? That's what we need to be doing for one another. That donor still gives to my organization, but now he's giving to her organization too. Generosity begets generosity. Absolutely. That is so true. And um, that's one thing I'm always saying to organizations that um, there is no uh, sort of hierarchy of oppression and we do not win when we are pitting our organizations against each other. That is a that is not a, the winning factor at all. I'm curious if you have had um, organizations tell you that I'm really worried about all of this focus on whether it's people are leading with racial equity or if they're leading with, you know, a broader diversity, equity and inclusions uh, inclusion kind of uh, focus that I'm concerned that we're going to lose donors because um, I, I just think this is not part of our work when, of course, it is absolutely part of their work. What have you discussed with individuals, organizations that are worried about moving too much toward the equity lens? We're, we're talking too much about race and wealth gaps and inequalities, and, and people aren't going to want to hear that. I would say this is the fundamental part of our work. This, this needs to ground everything that we do, is to restore balance, is to lift up the voices of the most uh, oppressed individuals in our society, is to take down systemic injustice. And we cannot do that. 
Um, and in some ways, if we are avoid avoiding talking about these issues, we might be unwittingly perpetuating many of the injustices that we are trying to fight against. And, you know, we might lose some donors. That, that's the, the job moving forward. But at the same time, we're probably going to gain more. I, I remember like Girl Scouts, when they got that $100,000 donation from an anonymous donor, who was just like, I'll give you $100,000. You can't serve transgender girls. And they're like, F this. <laughs> and they went on social media and raised a whole, like three times more, I think. And this is, this is what we need to do, right? There's so we, we have to take a stand. We can't be neutral anymore when there is just so much injustice going on. Being neutral is not helping. It might actually be exacerbating the problem, right? I remember giving a, a speech, um, uh, and then mentioning uh, Charlottesville and and white supremacy and white terrorism and and, and a nonprofit uh, leader stood up and said, "I we wanted to write a statement that we are against white nationalism and white supremacy and that we're fighting against it." And our one of our board members was like, "You know, what if we offend some donor?" And so they did. Right? They didn't release the statement. And I said, "Is this if a donor gets offended because?" You are saying that you're against neo-Nazism, white supremacy. Are they the kind of donors you really want? So we have to take stances now. We've got to be brave and courageous in taking stances for racial equity. Absolutely. And and just in line with what you've said, I've, I've certainly advised organizations that, yes, you may lose donors, as you said, but there's so many people waiting to join you because they absolutely want you to uh, take a stand to make sure that you're really clear about where you stand on these issues. And so um, there are many more people that will join you, and that's that's not something that you have to worry about. So if that that will be a message that I think people will really welcome. And uh, I certainly look forward to hearing you speak on September 20th in Chicago at uh, AFP Chicago's Development Day. We've been speaking with Vu Le, who is the executive director of the Rainer Valley Corps and the creator of the nonprofit uh, blog Nonprofit AF. Again, he will be here in Chicago on September 20th, and you can uh, find out all kinds of information about that at afpchicago.org. So, Vu, before we let you go, one of the things we like to do toward the end of our conversations is to have you answer a few questions from our listeners about nonprofit life. Uh, you ready to answer a few? Yeah. Okay. So, um, here's one. This is from Isabel. My organization is just about to close out our most recent strategic plan. As we are starting a new plan, my ED wants to know where we are, meaning she's asking me to measure in numbers how we advanced racial equity in the past last three years, in the last three years. How do we measure this? I don't think it's possible. We aren't a service provider. So number of folks served really doesn't work for us. Any advice on that? Wow, Mary. Okay, you just <laughs> a really complicated question about. Of course, <laughs> nothing can be simple. No, <laughs> <laughs> I would say we have, we we've been obsessed with measurements here in the mm -hmm. sector. Mm -hmm. Data and evaluation research have been done by white academics, and it might not be generalizable. And so much of our community's inputs have been dismissed as qualitative or anecdotal or whatever. And so we have to really be careful about how do we talk about metrics and who's get, who gets to define that and so on. So I would I would really advise Isabel. Yes, to Isabel. Really think about that, right? If they're an advocacy organization, it could be a matter of like 
how many how many how many people have they talked to how many people have been reached by an op that they wrote or whether they have talked to a senator about this, this type of work um also some internal metrics it's like okay if you were completely a whiteboard and now you brought on like five new people of color that is a major victory that should be acknowledged right also thinking about are you are you paying equitably at your organization is it only the people at the top again who tend to be very white get most of the money and then the lower paying positions are always people of color and has that changed much at all i I don't really have a simple answer no and and i don't think there is a simple answer i think everything you've said are also the same things that we would uh suggest someone uh, look at if you're an organizing uh group doing again public policy work then uh, you know, what's the makeup those, of those folks who are in your organizing campaigns? Who are the leaders in those organizing campaigns? As you said, who who uh, sits on your board? Where, what's the highest level of leadership look like in your organization? Uh, when we go into an organization to do racial equity work and someone is pointing out um, the key role of the administrative coordinator or administrative assistant, and that is the only person of color, that tells us something about the organization. And so all those are various ways um, that you can really look at how you've moved the needle on, on the racial equity work. And, and I would also say that it is not work that you will ever complete. You're not going to reach a destination. It's ongoing. And to also keep that in mind, Isabel, that this work, you will, you will set some new goals and objectives, ideally every year, every three years, however you're looking at this, uh, and that you continue to, to work at it because it's, it's ongoing work. So we have one more question, um, and this is another really complicated one <laughs> from Alec. Um, how do you still, how do you deal, I should say, with staff who claim management is being oppressive or espousing white uh, supremacist values when you try to hold people accountable around their job performance? This uh, last year, I had a staff member accuse me of this because after months of providing over $10,000 worth of coaching and support, I told him that it wasn't going to work out. He created a public narrative about me being a white supremacist without telling the whole story of what I did to make it work. Wondering how you would cope with or address this. Again, another very, very simple, straightforward question. <laughs> yeah, well, if you have another hour, we can really get <laughs> I actually wrote about this a while ago called The Wheel of Disillusionment. And it is talking about how people become disillusioned, what happens when they, when they do. And they will start to, you know, they, there's just so much going on. There's like seven stages of this wheel of disillusionment from a leader making a mistake or is perceived to make a mistake. Then it triggers someone and their trauma interacts with that oftentimes. And then they form a narrative and then they cherry pick data that supports that narrative and ignore everything else. And then they stonewall any sort of communication and then they create a you know, public narrative and, and the cycle just continues over and over again, right? And that has actually happened to me a few times. So it's not just white leader, it's, it's everyone. If you're gonna be in leadership position, you will probably experience this. Uh, it happens to leaders of color, it happens to, to everyone. Um, that being said, you know, we, we also have to be very thoughtful because we, we do have, um, power as, as, the, as a manager, as an executive director, you have power and it's really, and when you have power, you will have, I guess, blind spots or areas that you can't really see. And, and you, and you, and so oftentimes you will make mistakes 
And people are so, there's just so much going on. There's so much generalized anxiety right now that yes, people are going to be more, I like, I guess less forgiving sometimes, right? So being able to acknowledge the mistakes when you can and being, being open to getting feedback and not being defensive. Cause that's another thing is those of us who have power, have positional power tend to be very defensive when we are criticized, right? Um, really grounding um, yourself in, in the values, really having these conversations with everyone at the beginning, whereas like these are our values, what does this mean? We are direct with one another, we give feedback directly, we don't get mad at one another for things that uh, we never expected someone to do, that's not spelled out. Um, so that it has been helpful at my organization to spell out these things, because we've actually had lots of people criticizing us uh, for various different things. Like for example, uh, white volunteers, some of them quit because they were, they felt like we were not being called on enough, uh, at the public gatherings. And, you know, and then other POCs were like, you're calling on the white volunteers way too much. And, you know, so we have to sit down and say, you know, this is one of our values is equity. And that means people felt they had to be visibly leading. And that means if you're, if you're coming into the organization as a volunteer or a donor and you attend our meeting or our events, and we don't call on you first. We're going to call on leaders of color first, women leaders of color probably before that, you know. And are you going to be okay with that? But I think a lot of it is because we have values clashes and the values are not well defined. So we need to spend time to define our values, what these values look like in action. And then it'll be helpful. But once you're in the wheel of disillusionment, though, it is very difficult because there has been tons of weaponizing of social justice principles um and that's that's something else that i'll probably need to talk about later too you know sometimes we use things like safety as as a concept to avoid accountability it, it's either the system is terrible or it's all on the individual and somewhere it's in, the, in between yes the system is bad but you still have your individual accountability you know the system can oppress you but if you don't get your job done on time then yeah you probably will get fired. That is the way it works. That's the way of the world. Yes, yes. Oh, oh, and I think that's the problem is that we don't understand. We kind of think it's one or the other. Right. That's that's exactly right. We we need to be able to hold both of these principles. And I think I love the idea of really being clear about your values. In fact, posting them in your organization, making sure you review them, and when people are onboarded, and being able to refer back to them when these kinds of situations come up. I I think that is the uh, that makes a lot of sense to be proactive, uh, which we sometimes don't think we have the time to do in our in nonprofits. But I think uh, by being proactive, we can help minimize, not completely do away with these kinds of situations, but certainly minimize them uh, so that they may not occur as as frequently because we are all human beings and it's going to happen. There's there's just no way around it. So thank you so much, Vu, uh, for joining us here on Gathering Ground. For more information on Rainer Valley Corps, please go to their website at rainervalleycourt.org. And if you're in Chicago, don't forget to go to afpchicago.org to find out about Development Day on September 20th. We are so pleased to let you know that you can now find Gathering Ground on iTunes, in addition to SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Breaker, and Radio Public, and at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground.